Uh, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. This is what the Word of God has to say. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, in fact, I think probably the better way to read this is God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus gives this commentary. He says, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who uh, exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There is a truth about humanity, been this way for all of time and will be this way until Jesus comes back. And that is that you and I are constantly, constantly comparing ourselves to others. It happens at the gym, right? So there are always people at the gym. There's two types of people. There's type of people who can do more than you and there are types of people who can do less than you. Always work out next to the people who can do less than you. It'll make you feel better and you'll enjoy your workout more. It happens at work. There are people at your job that are better at what they do than you are and there are people who are not so good at their work. Who do you compare yourself when you're comparing yourself? Not to the people who are better, always to the people who are worse. It happens online. There's a lot of research now that, that shows that if you spend a lot of time on social media, it actually produces depression and feelings of, uh, of guilt, shame, and, and less of worth. You know why? Because you're scrolling through, and right now you're looking at those beach pictures and vacation pictures, and everybody's smiling, and you think, well, my family doesn't smile all the time, and we can't afford to go there. They must have a better life than me. It happens even at church. I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord, but I guarantee that some days you look at other folks and you go, man, it seems like they've got their life together. They love Jesus more than I do. And there are other days when you walk by somebody and you go, yep, they need to get right with Jesus just like me. Everywhere we go, we are constantly comparing ourselves. It happens in every segment of life in every strata, in every cultural dynamic, demographic, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others, making judgments about where we stand, whether above or below whom we're looking at. When we find ourselves among those whom we judge as less than us, it makes us feel good, a little prideful, glad I'm better than they are. 
And when we find ourselves amongst those that we judge as greater than us, it can make us feel ashamed and self-conscious about what we lack or what we don't have. There was a woman once who, who was a very busy, very active church worker in D.L. Moody's church. D.L. Moody was a very well-known uh, evangelist of a previous generation and a pastor. And he had been preaching that day uh, uh, some difficult truths uh, from God's word to his church. And this woman, I guess feeling a bit offended, came up to the pastor after the service and said, Mr. Moody, um, do you mean to tell me that I, an educated woman, taught from childhood in good ways and all my life interested in the, in the church and doing good must enter heaven in the same way as the worst criminals of the day enter heaven? Moody said, no, ma'am. I don't tell you that at all. God does. And he says everyone who would enter heaven, no matter how good they think they are or how well-educated or how zealous in good works, must be born again. So in this parable, Jesus is intentionally exposing the arrogance of our flesh. And in this parable, he is demonstrating that the only way one can come and know the salvation of God is through humble repentance before the Lord. And so taking this parable, I want to give us this morning Two warnings and one wonderful word of grace. Two warnings and one wonderful word of grace. Let's begin with the warning. The first is this, a warning against foolish arrogance. I see it most clearly in verse 11. So in verse 11, Jesus telling this parable, it, it says uh, the, the Pharisee standing by himself. We, we would understand this from other passages of Scripture. He's probably standing that the image that Jesus is painting is as, as, as Pharisees often did. They would go to a prominent place so that they could be seen and heard. So he's praying this prayer publicly and he, he goes and he stands up by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he begins to list all the sins, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, and then he looks over at the tax collector. And maybe you might even say, especially like the tax collector. Oh God, thank you that I'm not like that. There's a foolish arrogance here. And the thing about foolish arrogance, dear friends, is it will make you thankful for the wrong things. Foolish arrogance will make you thankful for the wrong things. Not only, not only thankful, but, but, but even prideful in the wrong things. Now, now Jesus uses two characters in this, in this parable to make his point of their great contrast, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if you're not familiar with those two, the roles those two people played in the first century, just if, if mamas were thinking how they want their babies to turn out, become they wanted their babies to become Pharisees, not tax collectors. Pharisees had devote, devoted their life to studying the law of God, knowing the law of God as best they physically possibly could, keeping the law perfect. They were the examples of perfect law keeping amongst their community. And on the total other end of the spectrum are tax collectors. 
There's all we could, there's a lot that we could say about them, but they had not only abandoned the law of God in that they were enriching themselves through all kinds of evil deeds, but they had abandoned their very own people. They were working for the occupiers and, and their, their ability to enrich themselves was because they were abusing their own people to enrich the occupiers and the occupiers let the tax collectors enrich themselves as they did. They were absolutely hated. They were the symbol. I mean, they were just the general symbol of an absolute rebellious person and a, and a, and a wicked person uh, in the community. And the prayer of the Pharisee is a testimony to his confidence before the Lord. Pharisees often stood and made prominent public showing when they prayed. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching on prayer when he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And he's speaking of Pharisees here when he says, for they, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The Pharisee was confident in his ability to please God. He was confident in his acceptability before God. He was confident in his separation from other vile sinners. And here's the rub. He was thankful for himself. Now, if you're in a place of foolish arrogance, you reject grace because in your foolish arrogance, you don't think you need grace. And you see that in this prayer. He's not thanking God for what God has done. He's thanking God, presumably, for who he is. In other words, God, you must be appreciative that I'm here praying to you. He was not thankful for the grace of God or the mercy of God or the help of God or the provision of God. Dear friends, listen to me. Before the righteousness of God, we have nothing but filthy rags and broken lives. We bring nothing to God but hearts and lives stained and broken by sin. We have nothing in ourselves to be prideful for or thankful for. The foolish arrogance of our flesh looks at the works we have accomplished and holds them up to God as if he ought to be impressed with what we bring him. But dear friends, that is being thankful for the wrong things. And when we're arrogant, foolishly arrogant, it not only makes us thankful for the wrong things, but ultimately it keeps us from seeing our need for mercy. The great tragedy of foolish arrogance is that we are blind to our need and thus not able to see our desperate need for the mercy of God. There is no distinction between the Pharisee and the tax collector regarding their need for mercy. Both men, if they are to be saved, will be saved through the mercy of God alone. Both have sinned. Both are condemned in their sin. Both need the saving grace of God to rescue them from death and hell. The Pharisee looks at the tax collector and recognizes his need for God's mercy. But the Pharisee in arrogance cannot see his own need for mercy. Do you see the imprisonment and slavery of this arrogance? Do you see the successful trickery of Satan in appealing to our arrogance? Oh, I know the allure that it is when Satan whispers in our ear, aren't you thankful how good you are? 
Aren't you impressed with how much God is impressed with you? Because that's a, that's a lie that keeps us from the mercy of God. It's a lie that keeps us from bowing our knees before God. It's a lie that keeps us from the throne of grace. Our flesh longs to be self-satisfied. Our flesh longs to be better than somebody else. But in such arrogance, we are blind to our desperate need for God's mercy. In blind arrogance, we stand when we should be bowing. In blind arrogance, we demand when we should be pleading. In blind arrogance, we declare when we should be requesting. In blind arrogance, it reveals, our, in our, it reveals us that we, that we should be prostrate before God when instead we're telling God what we are. Dear friends, the mercy of God is available to those who recognize their need for it. Do you hear me? Oh, the mercy of God is available, but it's available to those who recognize their need for it. And, and foolish arrogance will keep you from it. Warning number one, foolish arrogance. Warning number two, worthless effort. Look at verse 12. So in the Pharisee's prayer, he's pretty proud of himself. That's verse 11. In verse 12, he gives a short resume because I suspect he probably could have said more things. He gives a short resume of the things he does, and I think he's pretty confident that the tax collector doesn't do these things. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. Oh, you may fast once. I got you beat. I do it twice. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes on all that I get. Oh, oh, so you tithe on your net? <laughs> Bless you. I tithe on my gross. That's what he's saying. Worthless effort. The warning here is that worthless effort will cause you to trust in the wrong things. To justify his own righteousness, the Pharisee lists all the things that he does well. He fasts twice a week and he tithes on all that he gets. And listen, I, I would think for most Pharisees, because their life is driven by being righteous and obeying the law of God, I would imagine that for most Pharisees, this was likely true. They did fast twice a week. They did tithe on all that they had. And by the way, both things are good and godly acts of obedience. Fasting is intentionally giving intentional, concentrated prayer before the Lord. That's a good thing. The, the, the point of this parable is not to say that fasting is bad. And tithing is recognizing that God owns all things and obeying the biblical command to give a tenth of it to the Lord. That's a good thing. You ought to be tithing. But the point of this parable is not that these two things are bad. The point of this parable is that these two things are not enough to save. Did you hear that? It's not that these two things are bad. And it's not that you ought not to be doing good things. The point is, do all the good things and it's still not enough to save. Trusting in the works of the flesh for righteousness is trusting in the wrong things. Not I want to press this just a little bit further this morning. I think, now this is Ben Smith thinking here, but I think there are two demographics that are prone to this type of pharisaical arrogance. The first is those who excel at external areas of obedience and spiritual disciplines. This is what I mean. 
those, there are some people among us who they just, they do well, easily do well in those acts of obedience and spiritual disciplines that are public. Fasting and tithing and teaching Sunday school, attending worship, those things that are easily seen by others. Now, you might think that, well, nobody knows what we tithe today, but in the first century, they absolutely knew that. You would give your money publicly in the temple, and people would see what you were giving, and so um, it, was a, it was a public act. And there are some people that excel at those things, and there are other people who excel at things that are not so well-known, maybe hospitality or grace but for those who are, who are good at or, or easily excel at those public acts of obedience, it's easy to give yourselves to, an, to an, an arrogance that somehow you're better than those who don't excel at those things. Sort of the reverse side of that coin is there are some sins that are secret and private, and there are some sins that are, that are clearly visible, and some of you struggle mindly with those private sins but you do pretty well with those public sins, right? So praise God, you're not a drunkard. You're not stealing cars and you're not robbing banks. Well, I'm thankful for that. Oh, but you are a vile gossip. But nobody sees that. And so you're able to walk around town going, aren't, I, aren't, you, aren't you blessed to have me? You can trust me with your money, but don't trust me with what you say. Both are sin, are they not? And that can lead to, a, to an arrogance that somehow, because the sins that you struggle with nobody knows about, that, that, that somehow that makes you better than those whose sins are more easily seen. Now, there's another demographic. We've all, if you're a believer today, you've been in this one at some point. And that, 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 that are those who are young in their faith meaning they have fresh or new obedience, they have no testimony of faithfulness over time, or they, and or they have no testimony of failures because there hasn't really been a real challenge to their walk with their life. Here's how this works. You haven't been attending church for 20 years. Two weeks ago, God got a hold of you, and for the last two weeks, you've been in church faithfully for two whole Sundays. And on Facebook, you're shaming all your friends who don't go to church because you've been in church for two whole Sundays. Well, aren't you proud of yourself? You hadn't read the Bible in six years, but God's got a hold of you. And so for the last two days, every day you've gotten up and you've been reading your Bible and you've been shaming your friends, maybe even some that go to church because they skipped their devotional yesterday. And if you were as righteous as you were, why well, they would have been reading it for three whole days in a row. The warning here is that we should not trust in our efforts or ability. Whether you are hiding your sin but publicly looking righteousness, or whether you're not you're a new believer, really proud of yourselves, but really haven't experienced any difficult moments yet. The truth is, dear friends, if you are pushing your righteousness in front of others as something that will save you, you are trusting in the wrong things. Our efforts, even good works, are worthless outside of the grace of God. And when you trust in the wrong things, it will keep you from asking for what you really need. There is a gross assumption here. And the gross assumption by the Pharisee is that he doesn't need God. Rather, I think that the assumption here is that God needs him and that God should be thankful for him. 
But dear friends, both the Pharisee and the tax collector need God's mercy. Both the tax collector and the Pharisee need God's salvation. But only one asks for the mercy of God, while the Pharisee assumes he does not need the mercy of God. You see, trusting in the value of our worthless efforts keeps you from asking for what you really need. Outside of the mercy of God, it does not matter how spiritually you look and how many good things you do. God does not need your devotion. God does not need your effort. God has provided salvation through the work of Jesus Christ alone, who died on the cross for our sins, who alone saves us. In the pride of the works of our flesh, you ignore your need for mercy and do not receive what you really need. Listen to me carefully, friends. The mercy of God is available for those who will ask for it. Did you hear me? The mercy of God is available for those who will ask for it. Now, I said there were two warnings and one wonderful word of grace. Here's the word of grace. Verse 13 and 14, I think is where we see it. But the tax collector. Jesus tells the story of the tax collector. He says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Dear friends, to receive the amazing grace of God and salvation begins with recognizing who you are. The tax collector enters the temple aware of his unworthiness. He stands at a distance, doesn't even approach the throne of God. He's aware of his shame. The Bible says he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. He's ashamed of what he's done and who he is. And he's aware of his need. It says he pleaded with God for mercy. Friends, everyone is a sinner, unworthy of God's salvation. The Old Testament says it this way, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteousness deeds are like a polluted garment. <laughs> we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind takes us away. The New Testament picks up on that same theme and says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Luke says, Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here's the point. No one is really righteous and can approach the throne of God like the Pharisee. No one can approach God in their own righteousness. We are all Pharisees and tax collectors alike, tax collectors. Unworthy to be in the presence of God, full of shame for the violence of our sin and in desperate need of the mercy of God. Friends, before you can be saved, you have to recognize who you are. And secondly, you have to recognize who can save. As long as you're holding on to your ability to save, you will not turn to Jesus. But when you come to understand your true need before God, you come to understand who can save, uh, who can save you. It isn't your effort. It isn't your righteousness, but it is Jesus alone. 
You know, when I'm sharing the gospel, very often I, I go to Romans 3.23 because it lays out that truth that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we need to read past that 23rd verse on because it says, for now the righteousness of God has been, man made, has been man manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's a good word. Salvation, the forgiveness of sins, justification, and the hope of heaven comes through Jesus alone. Jesus alone provides salvation. He humbled himself to bear our sins on the cross. He overcame death when, we, when, when he resurrected from the grave. And Jesus alone offers salvation to the unworthy, to the shame and guilt-ridden, and to the needy. You got to know who you are. You got to know where and who saves. And then thirdly, receive the gift of salvation. To those hearing Jesus teach, I think the most shocking statement comes in verse 14. So let's look at it together. Jesus tells the story, Pharisee, the tax collector. Now maybe at, at the end of verse 13, those who were hearing were thinking, well, the Pharisee, of course, that's an appropriate prayer. He's a righteous, godly man. And they're thinking maybe the tax collector, that's an appropriate prayer. He's a wicked, vile sinner. You ought to be getting right with Jesus. And then verse 14 comes and Jesus says, I tell you this, this man, speaking about the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. In other words, the tax collector goes home justified before God and the Pharisee does not. That would have been shocking to those who heard it. But friends, hear me, salvation does not come by what you bring to God. Salvation comes by what God has brought and provided for us. The most powerful four words in the letter to the Romans are in Romans 10, 9. In that verse, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and hear the four words, you will be saved. <laughs> you will be saved. What a glorious declaration and promise. Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And declaring on the authority of Scripture, you will be saved. Come as you are, unworthy. Come as you are, ashamed. Come as you are, in great need of God's mercy. Confess and believe and you will be saved, made worthy, cleansed of all the shame and guilt of sin and receiving the amazing gift of God's grace through the salvation of Jesus. So the question this morning I want you to ponder with me is, are you humbled by grace? Because I believe if you have known the gift of salvation through, through grace, then you will be humbled by grace. Are you humbled by grace? Are you amazed that God has saved you? It changes how you respond to others, even to those who are the vilest, vilest of sinners. This name may not ring a bell to you, 
Rachel Denhollander was a, a collegiate gymnast at Michigan State University. And while she was a student there and an, an athlete there, she was one of the many women, and I mean many women, that the team doctor, a man by the name of Larry Nasser, sexually assaulted. Today, she's a lawyer and a very outspoken advocate for other sexual uh, victims of sexual assault. But, and she was one of the very first people to speak up against this doctor who had had a long tenure of vile abuse. In 2018, when Nasser was being sentenced to up to 175 years in prison for decades and decades of sexual assault, uh, before his sentencing, the, his victims, over 150 of them were able to speak. And the last one to speak was uh, Rachel Denhollander. I wanted to read to you the words that, that she spoke. And as you listen to what she says, listen for somebody who is humbled by grace, speaking to a man who had abused her greatly and who had abused many other. No doubt, there's no doubt Larry Nasser is a vile, wicked sinner. And at this point, and in this exchange, no evidence of repentance or, or even regret. Here's what she said. Speaking to Nasser, she said, you spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its very utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen this, in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul crushing weight of guilt so that, so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend it to you as well. Now friends, how does one who has been so wounded and hurt speak such gracious words? It's because she's known what it means to be humbled by the grace of God. That if it were not for the grace of God, none of us could stand before the judgment of God. If it were not for the grace of God, all of us would be condemned rightly with all the other vile sinners of the world. The Pharisee takes comfort, even rejoices in their confidence that they are better than such wicked people like Larry Nasser. But they do so toward their own destruction and condemnation, not knowing that they too need the mercy of God. All are saved, not by what they have done that is good or avoided what is bad. All who are to be saved are saved only by the grace of God.